0: All 8 billion of us are doing metabolism at all times. This show is about learning what metabolism is, how it affects you in every way possible from mood and mental state to performance and energy. We're all about fine tuning the human experience for you to achieve the best self you can be. And if you are someone who loves science, curious to know how your body works and how to optimize it, then you are in the right place. This is the HVMN podcast. In this episode we have Dr. Daniel Z Lieberman, who is the senior vice president of mental health at Hims and Hers. He's also a clinical professor of psychiatry and behavioral sciences at George Washington University, where he has received awards for teaching and research. He studied the Great Books at St. John's College and attended medical school at New York University. He is the co-author of the international bestseller, The Molecule of More, which has been translated into more than 20 languages, and the author of Spellbound, Modern Science, Ancient Magic, and the Hidden Potential of the Unconscious Mind. Dr. Lieberman has published extensively in peer-reviewed journals and leading psychiatric textbooks and has provided insights on psychiatric topics for the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, the U.S. Department of Commerce, and the Office of Drug and Alcohol Policy. In this episode, we talked about the history and revolution of psychiatric treatment, best practices, and how can you ensure a healthy brain and body for as long as possible. So I hope you would enjoy this episode as much as I did. Stay tuned. And today we have Dr. Daniel Lieberman on our podcast. Thank you so much for coming on to Health via Modern Nutrition podcast. Welcome.
1: It's a pleasure to be here a lot.
0: All right. So... Let's dive straight into it. Let's share what your background story is so that our audience know a little bit better on what we're talking about today.
1: Right, so I'm a psychiatrist. I spent 26 years in academia at George Washington University, having a wonderful time teaching, doing research, seeing patients. Um, But recently, I decided to make a little bit of a change. You know, it seems in some ways that the... um, The loci of innovation has shifted in the United States, away from academia and really towards Silicon Valley or the tech industry in general. Um, That's really where I feel a lot of the problems with psychiatry are being addressed. And so um, I took a job as the SVP of mental health at Hims and HERS and trying to bring some of my academic experience to bear on it and desperately trying to learn all about telehealth.
0: You know, I tell people all the time, um, it's ironic that a lot of times the academia, um, the people who are doing research are the one who is advancing science and advancing human civilization in general and technology. But they are also the ones that are paid very, very little compared to industry. And and a lot of my friends, I remember when I was doing my PhD, a lot of my other PhD fellows, um, they'll be like, oh, you're going in the industry going to the evil side you know because it's it's run by money um but at the end of the day you know some form of shift has to change one to reward you know the people who are actually pushing the the frontiers forward but two also making sure we have enough of these people with high integrity in the industry so that the the study so that the results the data is not being misinterpreted and it's not being are manipulated or exploited via uh, vested interests.
1: Yeah, and it's interesting that you mentioned uh, the motivations. The motivation of industry is maximizing revenue and profits, which sometimes can conflict with good patient care, uh, but not always. In, in many cases, companies make profits by serving their customers as well as possible. And I, I think it's worth taking a look at the motivations and incentives in academia because it's part of the reason why we need the private sector in this space. The motivations in academia are publishing peer-reviewed papers and getting grants. And that leads to all kinds of wonderful, interesting innovations. But the problem is that uh, once the study's over and the paper has been published, the researchers want to move on to the next thing. Uh, they don't want to go to all the trouble and hard work to bring this to market and commercialize. it, And so as a result, we've got all of these wonderful technologies metaphorically sitting on a shelf. Um, And they could be helping thousands, maybe millions of people. But we really need the private sector with the profit motive to grab those off the shelf and say, all right, let's see if we can get these into shape where they're actually going to be utilized.
0: Yeah, no, I 100% agree. I think... Um, that's why there is a lag of like almost 10 years behind scientific research and publication versus a commercialization of a, of a product. Um, so just for background as well, I for, work for HVMN, we sell exogenous ketones. The research around exogenous ketones being used or being Uh, discovered as a superfuel has started in early 2000s, but not until 2017 that the first ketone was brought into the market um, via the the research grant by DARPA. So uh, that just comes to show how long it takes from discovery or understanding of mechanism of action to commercialization and having a product that's available for the public.
1: Yeah, I think that there's an appreciation of just how hard the research is. There's less appreciation how hard it is to bring it to market. Absolutely. Um, Because, uh, you know, when you go from the bench to the bedside, as we say, all kinds of things happen that you didn't expect. And something that works great in a research setting with research volunteers who are very motivated to make this research a success uh, may absolutely fail when you go in the general population and you have people who um, are somewhat more difficult to work with.
0: Yeah. So speaking of you know, bedside care, let's talk about the current state of psychiatric, uh, psychiatric um, care. W- what's the current state? Like, what, what do we know of, um, of the current state? What do we use to um, treat psychiatric disorders? Um, share your thoughts, please.
1: Yeah. So, you know, there's a little bit of a paradox in the current state of psychiatry. On the one hand, we've got absolutely wonderful treatments. They don't work for everybody, and they don't always work as well as we want them to do. But if you look at all all medical specialties, uh, endocrinology, pulmonology, all of these things, um, Psychiatry makes the largest difference in patients' quality of life compared to any other medical specialty except surgery. Uh, They go in there oftentimes and fix the problem. But you know, if you think about it, if you go get treated for high blood pressure compared to getting treated for depression, effective treatment for depression is going to revolutionize your life. If you're depressed, it doesn't matter if you win the lottery or a Nobel Prize, you're going to be miserable. Uh, because your brain is simply not capable of experiencing happy states. Um, So we've got wonderful, highly effective treatments. The problem with psychiatry though is access. Um, For various reasons, insurance companies penalize psychiatrists. Psychiatry still has stigma attached to it. Other reasons as well, we just don't have enough medical students choosing psychiatry as a specialty. And so despite the availability of these wonderful treatments actually getting them uh finding a good psychiatrist to work with you can be extremely difficult
0: so let's talk a little bit about depression because so so you mentioned you know how your brain is just not able to be in that happy state is that just a matter of the chemicals that the brain is is secreting like can you dive deeper into the science? Cause you know, our audience do like, you know, when, when, when all our experts like dive deep into the science and explain, I think a lot of people can also relate with, you know, depression, given how common it is and how, how much people go through it. Um, it'll be great for you to explain to us, like what, what exactly is happening in our brain during depression.
1: You know, there's really been an evolution of thought about that. Um, Years ago, we talked about chemical imbalances, and it's still very common to hear about that. So for example, maybe somebody would say, if you have depression, you don't have enough serotonin. So you take a medication, let's say like Lexapro, also known as escitalopram, and that blocks the reuptake of serotonin, which we can get into in more detail if you like. But anyways, you have more serotonin available uh, in the brain turns out that's not true. Uh, That's really overly simplistic. During the first few days that you take a medication like Lexapro and SSRI, serotonin levels do indeed go up. But what's curious is that improvement in symptoms doesn't happen for a few weeks. And by that time, the temporary rise in serotonin has gone back down again. So um, in fact, during those few days when your serotonin is abnormally high that's when you have the worst side effects to the medication. And it's only when the body adjusts and brings them back down that the side effects go away. So this idea of a deficiency of serotonin or dopamine or norepinephrine or any of these others really didn't hold up to further research. So they moved on and they talk about circuit dysfunction. Uh, There's different circuits in your brain that are responsible for different behaviors and experiences. Um, And there's a circuit that goes through a Uh, part of the brain called the striatum, which seems to be important for mood. Other areas important to mood too, goes through the frontal lobes and different places. We said, all right, that circuit is not functioning well. And that is true uh, to some degree. We can actually measure that on brain scans, but we've evolved even further than that um, to a very exciting place. And that's a place of looking at something called neurotropism. Neurotropism in some ways is a fancy word for how healthy brain cells are. Uh, Brain cells um, have a cell body um, where the nucleus is and and where chemicals are produced. And on that cell body is a whole bunch of branches called dendrites. And uh, that's where other brain cells connect. And the more dendrites you have, the more connections you have, that allows the brain cell to gather information from many other neurons, essentially getting their perspective on whatever's going on and making a more sophisticated decision uh, about how to process that information. When people get depressed, um, they actually lose those dendrites. Um, I don't know if you ever saw the Charlie Brown Christmas special. No, I have not. Anyway, Charlie Brown is kind of a loser of a guy, gets a Christmas tree, and it's a pathetic tree. It's just got a few branches, it's half dead. That's what a depressed neuron looks like. When you treat with antidepressants, um, it reverses that course, and it gets all bushy. Not only that, it creates places for new connections to occur. You can even get the growth of new neurons called neurogenesis, which uh, not too long ago, we didn't think the adult brain was capable of. I
0: was going to say that, I was going to ask from what I understood is that the growth of the human brain stops in the early 20s, late teens. I believe That's, that was what I, we were taught in school. So what, what changed and what have we found out now?
1: We've simply discovered uh, new brain cells being created. There's a part of the brain called the hippocampus yeah. where it is most likely to happen. Um, But that's not the only place that it can happen. Now, in adults, it happens far, far more slowly uh, than in infants. Um, But the fact that we still do create these new neurons is very exciting because it, it suggests that fundamental changes can take place in the way our brains perceive the world.
0: Yeah, it's very interesting because a study a couple of years ago looked at resistance training, and then they measured the hippocampus size, and it actually increased by I believe twelve or six twelve to sixteen percent in size, um, showing the capability of adults to alter. the the brain structure and and grow more cells. So that to me is super interesting. And another thought I I just thought about is that um, speaking to Dr. Tommy Wood, um, he's another uh, neurologist who's, you know, very specialized in in, um, uh, children development. And, And he was saying that infants use ketone bodies as building blocks to develop their brain because they need those fatty acids that can't bypass the blood-brain barrier. Hence, they're synthesizing it in the brain using ketone bodies. And I'm just wondering, as an adult, if you can increase the development of or or improve um, your brain function in a capacity where you are developing more brain cells, will ketones help So, I mean, that's just me thinking out loud, you know, we might not have the answer right now, but that's that's super um, interesting to look into.
1: Yeah, there's lots of exciting ways to actually grow your brain. Uh, Exercise is one of them. Uh, Antidepressants will do it for people who are experiencing depression. Uh, I I think one way that's gotten a lot of attention recently is meditation and mindfulness. Um, Many years ago, the Dalai Lama visited Stanford University and met with some neuroscientists and he was very, very enthusiastic about the work that they were doing. And consequently, he encouraged his monks to participate in these experiments. And and what a valuable opportunity that was. The Stanford scientists got an opportunity to put these expert meditators um, with tens of thousands of hours under their belt into brain scans and compare them to uh, people who were not, expert meditators. And one thing they found, uh, was that the cortical thickness increases in meditators. So we can actually make our cortex and that's responsible for, um, higher order thinking, abstract thinking, willpower, all kinds of really good things. We can make that part of the brain thicker, um, through years of meditation.
0: Is this being published? Is this, uh, is this article somewhere? Uh, how can we find it?
1: yeah you know in my um, in my second book spellbound uh, I, I talk a lot about these studies, and uh, I, I reference the studies in the footnotes
0: nice nice uh, no that's that's super interesting you know uh, I, I often talk on the show that I only picked up meditation like a year and a half two years ago, and before that, being a scientist, I was very much. You know, I, I do think meditation works to a certain extent, but I didn't think it would directly be correlated with physiological change. I was thinking more of from a, a, a psychological standpoint without having a, a, a significant physiological change. So after diving into the literature and looking what people have done and what people could achieve with, you know, meditation and mindfulness, that to me was definitely an eye opener.
1: Yeah. You know, if I could just call you on something, um, I I think you're making a false distinction between psychological and physiological. I don't think it's possible to have even the tiniest psychological change without having an accompanying physiological change.
0: I agree. I agree. No, the moment I said that, I I knew that was that was not accurate, but at you the same time, get you. yeah, no. But at the same time, at that point, what I was thinking is that the i physio- am thinking that like the physiological change is the significant part, and then you get the minimal part, which is the psychological change. Again, that that is proven not to be true. But at that point, because I'm more of a physiologist, I'm I, I study metabolism. So for me, anything that is changed from a phenotype point of view. It has to come from a very significant change from a genotype point of view, a physiological type point of view, right? So, for example, when I studied metabolism of the, the diabetic heart in hypoxia, I needed to see the met- uh, metabolic change in substrate metabolism, right? I looked at the uh, perfusion of the heart and and how different substrate is being metabolized, and if that is disrupted, then I look at the manifestation of um, the physiological change, i.e. are the hearts bigger? Are the heart cardiac function being affected? Are these rats um less healthy compared to a uh, normal non-diabetic rat? So that was how I was trained during my PhD to look at things. And then when it comes to neurology, it's a whole different game. It's such a big area that I, I was overwhelmed when I first got into it and learned about it because um there's so much to be learned about our brain and we still only know a, fra- only a fraction of it.
1: Yeah, it, you know, in, in brain science, it's a lot easier to measure the psychological things. We can talk to patients, uh, we can give them questionnaires, measure their behavior. To get down to the physiology, we've got to use brain scanners and those are so terribly expensive that the studies usually only have a dozen or so people making them um, less valid. But the psychological changes of um, meditation are, are, are quite profound. I, I remember when I was a teenager, my father went on vacation to a uh, yoga camp, and he told me I could use his car while he was gone. was uh, so a middle of winter, smashed it up, and I was terrified to make that phone call to tell him I'd smash his car he was at a yoga camp, meditating every day, and he said, "Oh, I'm just so glad you're safe. Don't worry about it. Material possessions don't mean very much.
0: It it it's true. It does help me. Like meditation does help me dissociate and become less um, attached to worldly materials, and really appreciate, you know, the high order thinking stuff that you you talked about, uh, and appreciate the things that we." can actually, um, live with and, and, and go through life with rather than things that we can just physically hold. Um, so, so speaking of, of psychiatric disorder, I also want to ask you how much of, of these disorders are determined by genetics and how much of it is being uh, influenced by environmental factors, like for example, meditation.
1: Yeah. You know, in psychiatry, we talk about the biopsychosocial model. Uh, The bio is largely genetics, uh, what you're born with, but it could be other things too, such as physical illnesses. The psychological is um, really a lot about what happened to you when you were very young. Uh, During that period of time we discussed when the brain is changing so very rapidly. And then as the changes slow down more and more, those things kind of get locked in. I sometimes think about the psychological component of like a river, you know, a river starts very small at the source. Um, and, and if you move that, you know, a few feet to the east or west, uh, where the river ends up can change by hundreds and hundreds of miles. Um, and and that's, that's often what uh, depth psychotherapy or insight-oriented psychotherapy works on of those early experiences. And then we have the social, and that's what's going on right now. Uh, do you have good friends and family who are supporting you? Do you have a reasonably low-stress job? Are are you healthy? Are you exercising? Are you eating well? All of those things that are happening right now. Now, you know, there's been a ton of interest in the genetic aspect, the bio part of the biopsychosocial, and the results have been largely disappointing. We originally hoped we could find the gene for depression figure out what protein it makes and address that. What we found is that um, there are actually thousands of risk genes and uh, one person may have a hundred and get depression. Another person may have a hundred with no overlap and they get depression, each one having a tiny, tiny effect. And so the genetic approach has not been uh, particularly fruitful, unfortunately. But from the bio point of view, that has also uh, driven the um, development of all of the medications we have, which has been incredibly fruitful. Uh, We've been able to develop some very, very effective medications.
0: So while we can't specifically target those genes, we can now, because of the information that it provided us, we can now target at least the proteins, the pathways, the downstream pathways that um, we believe that is affecting those disorders. Is that correct?
1: Sword, almost. Um, You know, it's not that we, traditionally, it's not that we developed the drugs by first studying human biology and then saying, what do we need? Uh, It was more just happenstance, good luck, and throwing things against the wall to see what sticks. So for example, the first antidepressant uh, was actually used to treat tuberculosis. Um, uh, Tuberculosis used to be a huge problem, and they actually had tuberculosis camps. Um, And um, one day somebody noticed that everybody at the tuberculosis camp was really, really happy. Uh, they're having all kinds of parties, there was a lot of sex going on, and they're like, what is going on? And so they started testing one of these in uh, depressed people and it was an MAOI, oxidase inhibitor. We don't use them anymore, but, um, and it was uh, the first antidepressant. Another antidepressant was a, an anesthetic agent. Um, they were giving it to people undergoing surgery and a sharp-eyed doctor noticed Excuse me. that uh, his depressed patients uh, were feeling much better. So a lot of it has been luck. More recently, uh, we've been looking at targets such as the serotonin transporter, and uh, we've been able to develop molecules that bind to it. So we're moving towards a somewhat more rational approach, but still uh, the majority of psychiatric drugs are just being done by screening thousands and thousands of molecules and seeing if anything looks like it might work,
0: right, so since we know that environmental factors, social factors are also so powerful in affecting the both the development and the recovery of these disorders, what do we know from the science point of view um about the nutrition and, and lifestyle intervention on the effect of of, of those on these diseases?
1: Yeah, you know, recently there's been some interesting work on um, ultra processed food or hyper palatable food. Um, These are things like chips and burgers and, you know, basically food that comes from a factory instead of from a farm. And unfortunately, that's the vast majority of what we consume. Um, These foods are very bad for your brain. Uh, for one thing, they're addictive and and we can go into that in more detail, but for another thing, um, they, they cause uh, a lot of problems with inflammation and we're learning more and more that inflammation and depression are very highly related to one another. Uh, and so I, I think that Westerners tend to eat a pro-inflammatory diet, uh, and that does increase the risk of depression.
0: And earlier, before we press record as well, we were talking about the effect of uh, microbiome on, 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 you know, uh, psychiatric disorders. Can you talk a little bit more about that on how um, microbiome affects the brain?
1: Yeah, the, um, the science on the microbiome and how that affects the brain is in a very, very early stage. A lot of what we know comes from animal models, uh, mice. We, we haven't really gotten as much data on humans yet as we would like. But um, what we do know is that the microbiome is an incredibly complicated uh, organ, maybe it could be called, almost. Bacteria, viruses, fungi, phages, uh, all in an extremely complex interlocked ecosystem. And um, all of these things are producing neuroactive chemicals that they secrete into the bloodstream. There is also a very important nerve fiber called the vagus nerve, which connects the brain to the gut. And the activity of the microbiome has an influence on the activity of the vagus nerve. So we're not yet at a point where we can say um, more of this microbiome component is going to treat depression. We've got some ideas of who the good guys and who the bad guys are, but we're not yet at a point where we can really use it confidently as a treatment. What we do know is that there's a very big difference between a healthy biome and an unhealthy one. And these highly processed foods uh, lead to an unhealthy biome where you don't have a lot of microbial diversity. Um, whereas uh, a diet that is very varied, is rich in fiber, has lots of micronutrients, and um, best of all, has um, unpasteurized fermented food. So you're actually taking in live bacteria. Uh, this is associated with better brain health.
0: Oh, great. That's that's good to know. I think, you know, um, as you said, it is at a very early stage, even like the microbiome study in general, like, you know, all these new products that's coming out with probiotics, prebiotics. I honestly, I still don't know how it's affecting my health in terms of improving it, because I've tried some products, I ended up with bloating ended up with, you know, um, GI issues. And then I've tried another product with the similar sort of composition, and I had no problems with it. And it's also very hard for me to measure the positive effects it has, because I don't know what I'm measuring uh, over time.
1: Yeah, There, uh, there are problems with both probiotics and prebiotics. The problems with probiotics is that they're overly simplistic. As I mentioned, the ecosystem down there is incredibly complex. If you're putting in one strain of bacteria or even a dozen, um, it's not going to be able to mimic the complexity of the natural state. So uh, there have been some good results reported in studies. Uh, I, I don't know if they've been replicated, but I think it's an overly simplistic approach. Yeah. Now, prebiotics to me are a little bit more interesting because there, we're not trying to guess which one you need. We're we're, we're giving them fertilizer. We're we're feeding everybody. Now, there was initially some concern that if you're just giving food, uh, why wouldn't the bad guys benefit as much as the good guys?
0: I was going to ask that.
1: Yeah. And we don't know the answer to that, but empirically, when we test it, when we get samples from people using prebiotics... Uh, both go up, but the good guys go up more than the bad guys. We don't know why, but for whatever reason, it's good. Here's the problem with prebiotics though. Uh, and that is, um, I've gone, got a lot of focus. Uh, there we go. And uh, that is that um, processed nutrition is very different from food. So let me give you an example um, we know that people who eat foods that are rich in antioxidants have a lower risk of cancer. Well, what if you take an antioxidant pill, vitamin E, vitamin C, beta carotene? Does that give you the same protection against cancer? They did a study with smokers because they were at higher risk. And what they found was that people who took the antioxidant pills had a higher risk of cancer. Wow. Wow. And uh, the reason for that is that free radicals, which um, antioxidants mop up, can cause cancer, but the immune system also uses free radicals to destroy cancer cells. When you get it in food, for some reason it works. Uh, It it, it mops them up to prevent cancer cells forming, doesn't interfere with the immune system. You take it as a pill, you don't get that good balance. Because
0: it's too targeted, perhaps. Um, yeah. some people do believe that when you take nutrients via whole foods uh, or via food products you get the cofactors that comes naturally with them that our bodies are uh, evolution like evolved into being able to use more efficiently um how far th- how true that is we don't know
1: we don't know yeah but that that that's a good thought um now so if you buy a supplement or processed food that says it contains prebiotics, what you're going to be getting usually is purified inulin. And um, that, that probably doesn't have the same benefits as real prebiotic foods, which could be as simple as an apple or a pear. Uh, prebiotic foods are foods that are high in um, soluble fiber. Uh, that's what the, uh, the, the guys down there in your microbiome eat. Uh, We can't digest it. Uh, It has no nutritional value for us, but it feeds them. What's fascinating uh, is that we have found prebiotics in mother's milk. And the reason why that's fascinating is because the baby can't get any nutrition from it. The baby can't break it. The mom is feeding the microbiome in the baby's gut. So I think that gives us a sense of how important it is personally i i put a couple teaspoons of chia seeds in a glass of water every day and that's my prebiotic it, it and...
0: expands doesn't it it becomes like sort of like yeah chaotic. i let
1: it soak for five minutes because i want it to soak in the glass not in my gut um it, it expands it's got both um prebi- it's got both uh, soluble fiber and uh insoluble fiber as well as omega-3 fatty acids I think chia seeds are a wonderful thing to add to one's diet.
0: That's, that's great advice, thanks then. Um, okay, so we've talked a lot about depression, right? Um, what other psychiatric disorders that are plaguing our society right now, apart from depression, that is very common that people need to know, people need to learn about um, in your you know, past experience?
1: Yeah, I, I think that um, addictions is very, very important. Um, And the reason I say that is because compulsive behaviors, which are one of the hallmarks of addiction, these days is moving beyond the homeless heroin addict or alcoholic on the street and moving into the mainstream as a result of technology.
0: I get to interview all these doctors, scientists, and cool people in this health and fitness industry all made possible because of this podcast that is funded by the company I work for, which is Health Via Modern Nutrition or HVMN. And it is not that they pay me to do this, but I genuinely love and believe in the product Ketone IQ. I use it every day before my podcast, before my workout, or even after my workout for recovery. There hasn't been a single supplement that can give me such a drastic change in subjective feel within minutes as much as KetoneIQ has. For those of you who do not know me, I'm from Malaysia, I got my PhD from the UK, and my passion is in science and chronic diseases. And I believe it is all about transparency, scientific integrity, and about sharing with everyone so that everyone can benefit from it. And if you like this content and our work, please do support us by liking, leaving a review, or sharing with your friends and families, or even buying a shot of Ketone IQ at any Sprouts nationwide in the US, and the first shot is on us. Just scan the QR code and you'll get your money back for your first shot. You can also use the code HVMNPOD20, that is H-V-M-N-P-O-D-20, and get 20% off your first purchase at the HVMN website.
1: Because um, what what companies have realized is that Technological products can actually be very, very addictive. And rather than hiring experts to combat that and make them more safe, they've done the opposite. Uh, They've hired experts to exploit it and um, essentially actively find ways to harm their users as much as possible.
0: So what is going on in your brain when you have an addiction?
1: Yeah. So what I write about in The Molecule of More is that the brain chemical dopamine is really front and center when it comes to addictions. Dopamine is the chemical of motivation. It's the chemical that orients us to the future, specifically ways to make the future better, to maximize the resources that are available to us. And so we're going through our day and we spy something in our environment, or we get a message uh, that tells us your resources, survival resources, evolutionary resources, have the potential to increase, we get the release of dopamine, which makes us feel wonderful. It makes us feel enthusiastic, excited. We feel wide awake, fully alive. Um, And we work very, very hard to get this feeling. Now, uh, dopamine can be artificially increased in the brain through drugs of abuse. Um, And in fact, when you use a drug of abuse, like cocaine, for example, the boost you get to your dopamine is much higher than any natural stimulation. And that's why people who are drug addicts will give up all other aspects of their life because their brain is telling them the cocaine is more important than paying the rent. Uh, that's what dopamine does. It allows us to rank different kinds of activities, different kinds of rewards, and we choose the one that gives us the most dopamine. Uh, and with art- artificial dopamine, that's going to be the drugs, the cocaine. What, what tech companies have found is that they can do something very, very similar to this um, with electronic stimulation, not electricity, uh, but but things that trick our brain into thinking uh, scroll, tap, engage, and your life is going to get so much better. Uh, but in fact, um, it, it's a myth, it's a fiction. Um, but sometimes people will get locked in to these apps and to these experiences, and find that like addicts, they lose control over their behavior to a certain degree.
0: Yeah, it's the attention market. And before you know it, you're spending hours on scrolling and scrolling. And what have you learned? Almost nothing.
1: Um, yeah, and, and and do you feel better after doing this for two hours? Most of the time, no. Uh, you often feel fatigued and dysphoric. Is that when the dip dopamine goes
0: down, or, or is that is that something else that's going on?
1: Yeah, I think part of it is that you are um, you are depleting your dopamine, but I think another part of it is that your brain is not stupid. Uh, You know, your brain is made up of many different components. Dopamine is only one of them. And when dopamine kind of takes over and makes you engage in in these very maladaptive behaviors, it naturally pisses off the rest of the brain. like, come on, you just wasted all this time. We got nothing. Uh, And maybe we were exposed to toxic material, right? On social media, maybe we were exposed to lots of people Bragging about how great their life is, and now we feel like our life stinks. Um, Or maybe we've been exposed to, um, you know, life sucking pornography, or we've been exposed to, uh, you know, people taking crazy risks and getting injured. These are the kinds of things that seem to be most engaging on social media, and they're not good for the brain.
0: Right. So, what are the best measures? to counter addiction?
1: Um, The dopamine circuit in the brain is extremely powerful, but there is one thing that is more powerful than dopamine. And that is the circuits in the brain that mediate social connection. And so really the best way to overcome an addiction is to activate your social groups. We see this most clearly in Alcoholics Anonymous. Uh, They say, we're not a treatment, we're a fellowship. And so it's all about making these connections. When you make these connections, you get the support of other people, and that makes you so much stronger. Uh, That's the carrot. The stick is guilt. Guilt is a very powerful motivator, um, as all mothers know, and um, if... um, if uh, you, you, you slip and you use after committing to abstinence, you're going to let down your social group, whether it's your AA group or it's your friends and families. And that's going to be a powerful motivator not to, um, not to do it. I, when I'm treating addicts, I will often give them urine tests periodically, random urine tests. And sometimes they push back a little bit and they say, don't you trust me? And I say, no, this isn't for me. This is for you. Because when you are experiencing craving to use a drug and you know that I might randomly test you at our next visit, uh, that's going to be a tool. Um, You're not going to want to come to me with a positive urine and it will make you less likely to use. There you go. So, um, you know, when people are struggling with addictions, they're usually ashamed of it, whether it's pornography, social media, or a chemical. And the last thing they want to do is share this problem with their social group. And so a lot of the work I do with patients is helping them work past that uh, and saying, yeah, this this is a psychological cost. It's not pleasant, but it may be the only way to good health. And the truth of the matter is, if you do share this problem with your loved ones and they help you, it's going to bring you closer. Uh, it's going to increase the value of this already very valuable relationship. And you will be very glad at some point in the future.
0: So instead of feeling guilty and ashamed for doing it, you are almost rewiring their brain so that they get the reward of not doing it.
1: Yes, that's right. And the reward is everybody is happy. They've done something good. In, In some ways, what it becomes is that uh, when you say no to whatever it is you're addicted to, you're not only doing it for yourself, you're doing it for other people as well. And um, not to get off topic, but the happiness paradox tells us that when we work for our own happiness, it doesn't make us happy. But if you work for other people's happiness, it does. And so this is a way to turn doing something good for yourself into doing good for other people which is the only thing that really brings happiness.
0: That's really powerful, and, and, I, and I like that. I, my mom always taught me to do that. Um, even at times that are tough, always remember there are always people who are going through tougher times than you, you are, and that does not prohibit you from being able to help other people.
1: Um, I, I, I went to a, um, a, a brain conference mm. uh, in, um, in Romania, and there was a guy who was a happiness expert there and um he told me that um he went to the grocery store and used the self-checkout lane now he doesn't speak romanian and so he was absolutely incapable of managing it but he did it as a gift to the people around him because he required their help that gave them an opportunity to do an act of kindness which increased their happiness So by intentionally doing something where he lacked confidence, he made the people, uh, competence, he made the people around him more happy, which kind of blew my mind.
0: Wow. Ah, Thanks for sharing that. Also, so for for the social um, aspect of things, as you mentioned, being so powerful and being so supportive in going through addiction, would the social group work if it's online? Because as we all know, this day and age, there are more interactions online versus offline would it be as powerful i don't think so as in person but is that as as uh, effective enough to combat uh, you know things like addiction
1: yeah you know um the rate of learning about what happens when you interact with people online is very rapid right now uh especially in medicine because during the COVID pandemic almost overnight we switched from uh, almost exclusively in-person to almost exclusively telehealth. And we didn't know if it was going to be as effective. Turns out it is. Um, But of course, it it is based on what we measure. You know, we're measuring outcome of illness. We haven't looked at the details. And and I don't know if this has been done with addiction. Mm. So we've got to do the studies because... um, even though the early data is very optimistic, um, th- th- there are things that are missing. Um, you know, most of communication is nonverbal. Um, I hate talking to people on the telephone. Uh, I-, I often feel like I come across as an idiot because I need that visual thing. When I'm doing something like this where I can see the other person, I do much better. But um, you're drinking through still kind of a thin straw you're not seeing as much as you would in person. That's gonna get better. I I don't know if you saw at CES, there was a lot of hologram uh, uh, virtual stuff where it's more like being in person, but some things are still missing. Um, And um, there may be things that our nose picks up, Uh, odors we can smell, pheromones that we cannot smell, uh, that give us clues about what's going on with the other person. That comes in unconsciously that we're not even aware of and the hormonal change
0: with sense of touch as
1: well yeah that's right that's right and so some people find that in-person meetings are more productive even though they can't say why
0: Mm. all right well speaking of you know, on offline interaction and all thing, I know, um, uh, we were, we were going to talk about, um, the innovative, uh, asynchronous care model that you guys use. So I left some time so that we can talk through it. What is it about what's so innovative about it? And, and please share with us.
1: Yeah. So traditional treatment is, uh, with psychiatrists, uh, is you sit down in the office, maybe you lie down on a couch and, uh, the two of you talk for 50 minutes. As I mentioned, during the pandemic that changed and we went to a telehealth model in which we were using video conferencing. Um, at Hims and HERS, we've taken it a step further to an asynchronous model. Uh, a synchronous model is when you're both there at the same time. Um, an asynchronous model though, it is when you don't need to be there at the same time. And the communication uh, is via messaging So when people come in, they start out with an intake. Uh, It's an online intake in which they provide an enormous amount of information. Um, Now the doctor's not right there. Uh, That is gonna be forwarded to a provider. And what that means is that somebody can decide that it's time for them to get treatment any time of day, 24 seven, it could be New Year's day, it could be three o'clock in the morning. And this is actually more important than it sounds. Because of the stigma associated with mental illness, it's very, very difficult for people to pick up the phone and make an appointment. Uh, They put it off, they put it off, they put it off. When I was doing traditional psychiatry at George Washington University, we would get calls from patients saying, hey, listen, I need to come in today or tomorrow because I am in absolute crisis. We say, all right, how long has this been going on? They say, oh, about six months. And it's like, wait a minute. You waited six months until you absolutely could not wait one more day. And that's because of of these barriers. With asynchronous care, you just pick up your cell phone. And and at that moment, when you say, I'm going to do this, it's there. And you can do it.
0: How does the interaction work? Because, you know, the two-way interaction, the questioning, the answering, the empathy and all of that? How, how does that work?
1: Yeah. So the, um, the information that the patient entered goes to the provider and usually within a few hours, the provider will evaluate it, uh, make some decisions. Uh, and if the provider doesn't have enough information, then there will be some back and forth messaging. Um, and then at that point, the provider will make a treatment plan and implement it uh, the patient will initiate the treatment plan, often uh, starting off taking an antidepressant medication. And then uh, if the patient has any side effects, any questions, any concerns, again, they can message the provider 24-7. I don't know if you've ever tried to get a doctor on the telephone. Yes. It's <laughs> incredibly, it can take days. I
0: don't think I, 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 I mean, I tried many, many years ago. I don't think I've ever tried since then. <laughs>
1: It sounds about it. So with asynchronous care, uh, you just put a message in and um, usually get a response within hours. Um, so, so it's great for the patient because um, especially in psychiatry where there's so much stigma. And we also treat other stigmatized conditions like erectile dysfunction, hair loss, things that, that are harder for people to talk about. Um, it, it makes it much easier. It's got another advantage as well. And that is that it's incredibly time efficient for the provider.
0: Mm
1: -hmm. Uh, The provider just focuses in, Um, you know, if I'm, if you're a doctor and I'm telling you about my problems, I'm going to be doing a lot of ums, a lot of pausings and that sort of thing. This really narrows it down. The provider can instantly see the information that is necessary. And so what that means is that we leverage the expertise and we can use that to address the psychiatrist shortage that we're suffering from. In the United States, and I'm pretty sure in the UK as well, you guys have a terrible psychiatrist shortage. Um, and, and so you can about double the number of patients that one provider is able to treat.
0: So in terms of the, the patient side, um, the adherence and compliance aspect of things, do you find it as effective versus um, uh, you know, synchronous and in-person?
1: You know, it's very, very difficult to tell. And the reason is that we're comparing apples and oranges. We do offer some synchronous treatment. And the reason for that is that there are some states in the United States that simply don't allow medical treatment to be done asynchronously. So in those states, we have um, synchronous. And what we find is the adherence is terrible. Um, Patients don't show up for visits. They don't show up for follow-ups. And so what we've learned from that is that the population that is attracted to these kinds of very, very convenient, very easy access online things are probably different than the population who's able to get themselves into a doctor's office.
0: I would assume they would have more self motivation, like self.
1: The, the people in the office. Yeah. 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 And, and so, um, you know, we haven't done a formal study, mm-hmm. but I suspect our adherence isn't as good. Um, and, and, but I think that that's more a selection bias. It's more of a reflection of the kind of person who's going to seek out care asynchronously versus those who are able to get themselves physically into an office. Fair enough.
0: And you are also trying to develop AI solutions to help your clinicians um, select so like the right treatment. Tell me a little bit more about that. It's it's really, you know, the hot topic of, of, you know, the year, you know, AI and all of that. So so how are you employing AI into helping develop solutions for your patients?
1: The, uh, the AI work being done at Hims and Hers is one of the primary reasons that I wanted to work for them. It's incredibly exciting. Uh, so what we're working on is an AI that we call MedMatch, and we're using it to try to predict what antidepressant a patient will respond to. This is very, very important. And the reason is that finding the right antidepressant or combinations of antidepressants and augmenting agents in psychiatry is trial and error. You know, if you had an infection, let's say a pneumonia, uh, we could take a sample of your sputum, uh, we could find out what the bacteria is, Uh, We could test it against certain antibiotics and know exactly what it is that you need to get better. We can't do that in psychiatry yet. Uh, There are no brain scans. There are no blood tests that tell us which medication is right. And that's a big deal because there was a very large study uh, that was called the STAR-D study uh, that looked at response to, uh, different steps of antidepressant treatment. They found that with the first step, one single trial of an antidepressant, only 30% of patients got all better. Yeah. And, um, if somebody doesn't get better at the first step, a lot of them are going to drop out. They're not going to give the psychiatrist a second chance and, and so it's so important to get it right the first time, to, to help the 70% of people who aren't getting better. And so we're, we're pulling in an AI, and we're seeing, can the AI do it? Because amazingly, AIs are able to spot patterns in data that human beings can't. And so it may be uh, that by feeding AI, we, we, we have... We have th- we have thousands and thousands of patients that we've treated. So we've got this wonderful, wonderful, massive database that we can feed to the AI. And our hope is that it's going to be able to identify patterns that have not been identified in the literature yet. And boy, if we get that 30% up to 40%, it would be revolutionary.
0: Yeah. That's really exciting. I think, um, when I interviewed Dr. Chris Palmer on uh, talking about psychiatry and the history of it, and how, like you said, um, the, the area itself has been unrevolutionized for a long time. It has been a very old model, you know, throughout decades. Um, it's about time that we leverage the tools that we have and the technology that we have in order to really treat people um, in a more efficient way, given that the prevalence of these. Um, illnesses and disorders are also increasing at an exponential um, rate.
1: And that's another reason why people like you and I um, need to transfer from academia to the private sector, because academia changes so, so slowly. You know, academia is based on the most traditional medicine there is, because there's this hierarchy of seniority. Usually, the longer you're there, the more you progress up the academic ranks, the more influence you have. And we know that physicians as a group tend to be more resistant to change. Um, And and so you don't see these radical solutions being tried. I I sometimes say, you know, in medicine, our guiding statement is from the Hippocratic Oath. First, do no harm. In tech, it's move fast and break things. Uh, And and so people like you and I, we've got to kind of help to find that balance. Um, but first, do no harm is not a recipe for innovation.
0: Yeah. My PhD supervisor always reminds me if it's not broken, don't change it. If it's not broken, don't change it. But you know, if it's slowly getting worse, it's not technically broken, but it will be at one point. Do we have to wait then? Even if we have the solution now, do you know what I mean?
1: I... And it is broken. You know, we can pretend it's not broken. We can say, look, traditional healthcare today is better than it ever was. And in that sense, it's not broken. But it still falls so far short of what people want. And um, it, it's too expensive. It's too... I remember one year, um, a bunch of us were giving out free flu shots at the, uh, at the entrance to the subway. And um, among... there's just kind of this sense of euphoria. Because that's how people wanted healthcare to be. They wanted it to come to them, and they wanted it to be free. Mm. Um, by that measure, it's broken.
0: Yeah, fair enough. Fair enough. All right. Well, uh, to sum it all up, do you have any message for for our audience? Um, you know, on how to better take care of themselves and how to take care of their mental state, and hopefully, you know, prevent as much as possible these. Uh, Psychiatric disorders from happening with within themselves or within their family and loved ones.
1: Yeah, you know, I would just say that it's important to keep in mind that psychiatric illnesses are medical illnesses. They're not about being a weak person. They're not about having no self control. They're not about moral turpitude. It, it's a medical illness because the brain is a biological organ. Just like the liver, the lungs, and the heart. And, you know, if you're experiencing things that just don't seem right, you're unhappy despite your life being fine, you're always worrying despite not having things to be worried about or anything else, um, don't blame yourself and don't be embarrassed because, as I said at the very beginning, treatment has the potential to increase the quality of your life more than almost anything else that you could do. Be healthy, be happy, recognize it's a medical illness and seek medical treatment.
0: Thank you. And for those who would like to find out more about you, Dan, where can they find you?
1: Uh, They can check out my website at danielzlieberman.com. And I would just like to point out that I do not have any social media accounts, because I think they're evil.
0: You, you truly, you truly are, you know, uh, in line with what you preach. Uh, I'm trying uh, to walk the walk. (laughs) What about those clips that we're gonna make out of all out of this amazing episode? You know, we gotta we gotta use this, as you said, you know, to spread awareness and information and make sure people, you know, even if we don't do this, they'll be scrolling anyway. So if they're gonna be scrolling anyway, they might as well get some value out of this.
1: I agree. There are good uses and I use them. I don't have accounts, but I go on them because they can be useful. Um, but like all powerful things, they can be very useful and very dangerous. Absolutely.
0: Well, on that note, thank you so much, Dan, for being on today. And I'm glad I reached out to you. Um, I saw you on one of the YouTube, um, uh, interviews and I thought I got to have him on, on the show. So I'm glad I reached out and thank you for, for coming on.
1: Thanks so much for having me.